Hey everybody, I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys, checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And this week we're taking a look at Sandman issues 29 through 31. That's right. Now this is a smattering of side stories, uh, standalone stories, that together are referred to as distant mirrors. There's actually a fourth distant mirrors issue, but scheduling caused it to be pushed back in the series, and we're trying to cover the issues in order, so we're going to come back to that later. Yeah, now at this point in the series, uh, the way that it's reproduced in the trades becomes really strange. Yeah. Because the trade paperbacks decided to put all of a game of you first. Yeah. Yeah, they sort of deliberately arranged to alternate between uh, side story collections and big arcs. And big story arcs, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense because... You know, you don't want to release a book with, like, four one-shots in it and then, like, half of a story arc. And yeah, the next trade has to have the second half. But in any case, these aren't even in order in the trade. That's right. But, yeah, there's something else about these issues that we can talk about. They take place throughout history. This is true. None of them are set directly after Season of Mists. And they are all named after months. They are, and the fourth one will be as well. Also... Every one of these stories, it may be worth mentioning, takes place before Morpheus's imprisonment that was the kickstart for the series. Well, I said they took place throughout history. Yeah. But these fall into a formula that we've kind of seen before in the side stories that basically a character will encounter Morpheus or some aspect of his world and, and get a view on him. And that's sort of the main way that we're exploring the character of Morpheus throughout the series. Yeah, although these issues tend to not really particularly be studies of Morpheus, mm -hmm. so much as they're studies of historical characters. Yeah, Do... I think that's fair, with Morpheus having, in some cases, a very small role. Yeah, you know, Neil Gaiman has a fondness for, like, host characters from old horror anthology comics. Yeah. And I think Morpheus is sort of almost serving as a host character in these issues. Fair enough. To bring us to, like, interesting historical stories. But, again, it's not just pure history, though. There's, like, a hint of magic to all of it. Yeah. And sometimes more than a hint. Sometimes there's a talking head. <laughs> we'll get to that. Right. So, uh, Sandman issue 29, Thermidor, named for the name that the month of July was given in the French Revolutionary calendar. That's right. This is written by Neil Gaiman with art by Stan Walk and Dick Giordano. Cover is by Dave McKeon, and we have a black and white sketch of a fist holding up a head. There's a green crescent moon across the head's left eye. So we open at Witch Cross in England, which is uh, where the series began. That's right. This is the mansion that will eventually be Roderick Burgess's house, where he keeps Morpheus imprisoned for 70 years. But currently, it belongs to an ancestor of John Constantine. And by currently, we mean June 28th, 1794, or year two of the revolutionary calendar. Yes, indeed. Now, do you want to talk about Joanna Constantine? Well, we met Joanna Constantine once before in Sandman number 13, Men of Good Fortune, when she showed up at a tavern where Morpheus was meeting another immortal old friend, and tried to capture them both. That would be Hob Gadling. Right. She had become convinced that they were the devil and the wandering Jew, and she was going to ask them answers to some pressing questions that she had. Now, Dream appears to Joanna here and recruits her to do a job for him. He reminds her of their meeting five years earlier. He adds that he needs a favor, it's a family matter, and he can't involve himself directly. 
I also like that she says, Sir, I will call for the servants. And he says, Your servants sleep, my lady. <laughs> yeah, I also like she asks him, What are you offering me then to risk life or mind for you? Gold or property? No, my lady. Birth has blessed you with a surplus of both, and I have neither. How revolutionary of him. <laughs> he offers what is in his power to give. She has since researched who he is and is not convinced he's the devil anymore. Okay. And... For that price, which I don't think we find out what it is, she agrees. We might infer that it's pretty similar to the price that he paid to John Constantine when John helped him out in number three. Well, but John Constantine was having magically induced nightmares, which Dream took away. All right, fair enough. Joanna Constantine is not in any such trouble. Not that we are aware of, although he did give her a vision that caused her to become helpless back when they met in issue number 13. So maybe she's haunted by similar guilt. Could be. So, it's nearly a month later on page two, and we are now in Paris. July 24th, or the 6th of Thermidor. Dressed as a peasant, Joanna is stopped by two guards hoping she has food in her sack. Nope, it's a pale-skinned head. Yeah, that's not a cabbage, as the guy had hoped. And she says that the head belongs to a uh, dirty aristocrat who raped her sister, and now she's bringing it back home for her mother to spit on. She demonstrates spitting. Yeah, and then she does a really over-the-top evil laugh, which is maybe intended to let us know that she's not the greatest actress. <laughs> that's an interesting way of putting it. They certainly conclude that she's a gross weirdo and they're about to let her go but not before one of them cuts off the head's earring and takes it thank you a thousand times my pretty the next time you have treasure to donate to the people please come down this road also joanna gets back to her small room at an inn where she takes the head out and apologizes as she wipes the spit off his face it cannot be helped the earring will bring him nothing but misery and eventually it will come back to me it has been stolen before now. Frankly, madame, I am more concerned about what they will say to their superiors. The word will soon be out to look for a young woman with a head. With two heads, sir. Yes, with two heads. And she refers to him as Master Orpheus. Yes, indeed she does. Now, have we heard about this character at all? Or are we kind of on our own here? I think we're pretty much in the dark. Okay. We have some knowledge of the fact that Morpheus used to date a muse. Calliope. Yes, and that she is the mother of his child. Right. All this came out in the issue entitled Calliope. Right, which was issue number... 19, I think. It's issue 17. Okay. So, Orpheus fears the authorities are going to figure out what she has stolen, and they will be on the lookout for her. They try to plan a way to get out of the city tomorrow. So... We now cut to a mutton-chopped captain leading his men in searching Joanna's little garret for the missing head. Joanna is hauled before them, but denies any knowledge. Yeah, and they can't seem to find it around either. A fancy man now enters the scene. This is Monsieur Saint-Just, and he intervenes with the captain, saving Joanna from, looks like it was about to turn into torture or rape. Yeah, at least a very heavy-handed interrogation. Monsieur Saint-Just has orders to take her elsewhere, and he seriously intimidates the captain into backing down just by mentioning offhandedly the Committee for Public Safety. Now, at this point during the French Revolution, the Committee for Public Safety had basically 
been created to bring order to what was previously a pretty chaotic revolutionary government. I think that's right. And this St. Just is a, a real person. That is true. Okay. Yeah, he's a historical character. We're not going to get in-depth right now into what happens to him, because part of it is later in this book. Right. Yes, indeed. The two of them board a cart, Joanna and Monsieur St. Just, he says she's going to the Luxembourg. It's a place where political prisoners are taken. Yeah, and he mentions here that they slept together earlier? Indeed. It's not really clear when that took place. I want to mention here that uh, Monsieur saint Just uses the adage, Liberty is a bitch who must be bedded on a mattress of corpses, which is a favorite of Neil Gaiman's. I think he dropped it in American Gods as well. Joanna taunts him for not being that original. <laughs> well, at least Gaiman knows it. They head for the Luxembourg. He gives her a sort of false comfort here that she won't be staying long. The only options are acquittal and death, and the Committee for Public Safety doesn't hear evidence for the defense. Now, as they're making their way to her cell of Luxembourg prison, they encounter a person who will be familiar, I think, to most American listeners. Mm -hmm. And that's Tom Paine, author of Common Sense. Hilariously, Thomas Paine instantly recognizes Joanna Constantine. Yeah, it's implied that they know each other from some past adventure, which is kind of weird. Now, at this point, the American Revolutionary War is over. Mm -hmm. And St. Just taunts Thomas Paine that the Americans have no more use for him. Word? Why should there be word, Mr. Paine? You are an embarrassment to them. The only way you will walk from here is when you begin the journey that permits no returning. How many people has your damned committee sent to their death in the last month? Ten thousand? Twenty? This reign of terror is an evil, monstrous thing, and your master, Robespierre, is the most monstrous of them all. St. Just replies, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country, but he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of our men and women. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Your words, Payne. And he has quite a shitty grin on his face as he is reciting a Tom Payne quote back at him. Yes. We are not going to see Payne again in this issue, uh, but he does not actually die under the guillotine. He will be ransomed by then-Minister to France James Monroe in November of this year. What's the French for November? Noviembre. I mean, what's the revolutionary French for, the no for November? <laughs> I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> you said it, and now you have to look it up. Fuck. <laughs> Before we move on, I also want to mention another shit-eating Saint-Just line. As they approach the Luxembourg, he said to Joanna, See how hospitable we are, Jean. We give you a palace to live in. <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> yeah, he, he's a real son of a bitch. So now we come to the title page. It's a very late title page. This is page 11. Of 24, yeah. This is halfway through the issue. Featuring characters created by Gaiman, Keith, and Dringenberg. There's some important dialogue here as Saint-Just locks her in the cell. She asks, Will you kill all the poets then, Saint-Just? All the dreamers? When they have served their purpose, yes. Bob Rare de Galantine devised our calendar, and he died with Danton, last germinal. Now as she's alone in the cell, narration suddenly strikes up, which we have not been seeing before, from the journals of Lady Joanna Constantine, British Library sealed shelves. Yeah, with not much hope or much to do in her cell, she 
commits her mind to the things that she has already accomplished. She briefly recaps that she seduced Sanjust and used him to learn the head's location, which we kind of could have deduced. And she watches out the window as there's a marionette show played with headless corpses. Yeah, she reflects at this point that despite being thought the stronger sex, men are more tractable than children uh, when their passions are inflamed. Referring to her seduction. Yes. In short, men have a fund of gullibility. And as my readers must by now have gathered, one I have never shrunk from exploiting when it met my purpose. A short time later, she is interrupted by Robespierre himself. You watch our little puppet show? It is amusing, is it not? Comes a voice, and behind her it's Robespierre. And he basically confronts her for being a professional spy. He reads from a book details of her life, including a twin sister who died shortly after birth, and that she was trained by the famous spy, the Chevalier de Aon. Apparently, eight years earlier, in Russia, in 1786, she stole some very important papers uh, using a similar subterfuge. He says that she stole an object of superstition and decadence, and he wants it back. Good day, Citizen Robespierre. I don't know what you're talking about. He knows she took the head. She asks, what would he do with it if he got it back? I would destroy it utterly, and I will. We are remaking the world, woman. We are creating an age of pure reason. We have taken the names of dead gods and kings from the days of the week and the months of the year. We have lost the saints and burnt the churches. So I have seen. You will save France if you have to kill every child, woman, and man in the country to do it. At this point, Joanna speculates that Robespierre has never had sex. Tell me, little citizen, have you ever slept with a woman? Or with a man? Robespierre vaguely threatens her. He says she'll get food and water only if she gives up the head. Which I guess is a specific threat, not a vague one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. He has very purple eyes in this panel. Purple? Yeah, don't you think? I thought very ice blue, but fair enough. Oh, I guess so. He's also depicted here very short. In the first page he appears, every panel he appears in, there's a large man behind him, and we can see that man's head over his head. And Joanna refers to him as Little Citizen. Fair enough. At one point in his speech, he refers to the infernal Mr. Pitt. Did you know that what that was a, uh, a reference to? I assumed that he meant the Pitt, as in Satan. Oh, okay. It's really interesting that he is opposed to superstition even though he acknowledges that it's a thing. He wants to destroy what he admits are mystical artifacts because they lead people to believe in the mystical. <laughs> well, by referring to it as an object of superstition, I think he's implying that it doesn't have any real powers. Oh. All right, that's fair. Whistling in the dark, perhaps. Well, he does suggest, however, that she's here on the employ of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> in the meantime, my men will keep searching. After all, how long can a head remain hidden? A long time, dude. They're small. So he leaves, Joanna falls asleep, and finds herself in the dreaming with Morpheus. They're standing in front of a mountain stream of pouring blood. Uh, Joanna is now perfectly dressed and coiffed, incidentally. And she asks for help, imploring him that the head does belong to your son. Dun dun dun. Your son's head is valuable to you, and I am attached to mine. Indeed, hitherto we have been inseparable. Now it appears both heads may be lost. From his shoulder, Dream's current raven, Jessamy, makes a suggestion. Sire, if I might make a suggestion, sire, your son knew many songs. If he were to sing... But he would need a chorus. Now Dream gives Joanna a potion 
so she can remember his words on waking, and he begins to outline a plan. We do not learn the plan on this page, which means it will be a success. <laughs> yeah, that's basically how that works across all of fiction. A couple of things about this potion. First, I wondered if it was a draft of blood from this mountain. Second, this is like the only time in the series that you need to take a potion to remember what Morpheus says to you in the dreaming. Maybe he's just being theatrical. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> just giving it to her in a context that she can understand. Here, have some magic potion. <laughs> Drink this blood, for I am the worst. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it's later, and Robespierre is leading Joanna somewhere, still in the middle of the night, though. Uh, this page is all bright yellow reflecting off the people's faces and clothing, garish in the torchlight. Right, it's actually a lantern. A yellow lantern. Shit. <laughs> yeah, they've got, the, they've got the yellow lantern of jealousy or whatever. Fear? Fear, yeah. Fear is yellow, that's right. So, I guess they're keeping all the objects of superstition together. Right, jealousy is orange, because Larflees. Yeah, Agent Orange. That's right. We're, we're getting off topic here. It occurred to Robespierre in a dream where the head would be hidden. Where do you hide a book? In a library. Where do you hide a flower? In a garden. Where do you hide a severed head? Where do you hide a severed head? That's a shitload of heads he found. Yeah, this is a very effective page. He throws open the door and we see Robespierre, Joanna, and his guards on the far side of this vast mound of severed heads, which from this angle look to be half the size of a man. Phew! What a stink. Meat does not keep well in this July heat. Thermidor. I meant Thermidor. Joanna gives Robespierre one last chance to let her take the head and leave. Nope. Very well, citizen. This is the head of Orpheus, ripped from his living body by the Bacante. They used their bare hands, the women of the frenzy. Do you know who the Bacante are? Is that just followers of Bacchus? Yeah, it's derived from Bacchus. They were, uh, well, women of the frenzy. Also referred to as maenads, they were basically wild women who engaged in drink and song and sex and violence all the time. I thought maenads were mythological creatures. Well, Orpheus is a mythological creature. Right, but I'm saying, are they regular, like, cultists, or are they mythological creatures of some kind? That's a fair question, and I don't really know the answer in the context of this issue. Maybe we'll find more about that later. Robespierre is unimpressed, believing the head to be nothing more than a legend. Do you take us for peasants, Joanna? The myths are dead. The gods are dead. The ghosts and ghouls and phantoms are dead. There is only the state and the people. No, Monsieur Robespierre, there is much more than that. Now, Monsieur Orpheus, sing to them. My ears were covered, but I could not entirely obliterate the sounds the head made as it began its song. Although I possess a modicum of Greek, the most part of the words it used were unfamiliar to me. Still, by what means or mechanism I cannot say, I found myself deriving some measure of sense from its chanting. The head sang, First of blood, of the baying, senseless cries of the mob, of the anger of women and men, of the worm that devours its own flesh. Then it sang of freedom, of liberty, of love. And as it sang, I gazed in dumbfoundment, for other voices were also raised in jagged unison. Discordant voices, harsh voices, the voices of the dead, and my friend, for so I now bethought him, 
no longer sang alone. As Joanna's journal narrates, the heads upon which Orpheus sits open their eyes and mouths and begin to sing along. The ghastly chorus sang of those who lead, of those who by virtue of circumstance are raised above the crowd, who manipulate the commonality, will they or nil they, as a puppet master tugs on the strings of a marionette, or a Romany traveler pulls the leash of his dancing bear. It sang of a dream, and of the ending of the dream. Robespierre, Saint-Just, and the guards stand dumbstruck as Joanna takes Orpheus's head and slips away. In two panels, my apologies, sir, she clocks a guard, takes his clothes, and rides away on horseback. Joanna Constantine left Paris shortly after dawn on that day, 8th Thermidor, year 2. On the 9th, Louis Saint-Just, a famous orator, faltered before the National Convention for the first time. Robespierre then tried to speak, but his speech had lost its power. For the first time, he found himself lost for words. He was laughed at. That very night, Robespierre's faction fell from power. And the next day after that, Saint-Just and then Robespierre were executed by guillotine. Right, and we're told that the reign of terror ended with the death of Robespierre. September 9th, the Isle of Naxos, off the coast of Greece. This is a beautiful but ruined temple high on a mountainous island. The priests will take care of me. I stayed on this island for many years before I was stolen. It will be good to rest once more, and my mother still comes by from time to time. He asks if Joanna will see Morpheus again. I would hope so. After all, there is still the matter of my fee to be discussed. Troubled, Orpheus then asks a question of his own. Joanna, he must care for me, do you not think so? If my father did not care for me, he would not have had you rescue me. I do not know. I trust that he will repay you adequately for your time and trouble in assisting me. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly, Orpheus. True, but when you see him, tell him I miss him. I have not seen him for so long. Not even in your dreams? Not even in my dreams. Joanna offers to return in a year or so. Orpheus says that's not a good idea. And we end on a bit of narration from her journal. I never saw him more, but as the years have passed, I have, on occasion, seen him in my dreams. And from that time on, the song of Orpheus has always hovered at the edge of my perception, a melody I can never truly recapture, try howsoever I will. And do not doubt that there are many in authority to whom I would sing it, if it were within my power. So that's kind of a light-hearted adventure story, except that it's incredibly grim. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely develops the mythology as well, since we meet Orpheus and find out a lot about Morpheus's relationship with him, which is clearly rather sour. Yeah, I guess we're going to have to go back to that whole Greek cast sometime in the future. Mm -hmm. I like that they brought back Joanna Constantine. I like that Joanna Constantine's adventures are somewhat reminiscent of John Constantine's adventures. <laughs> I, You know, she's much more... Um... Proactive? Competent? <laughs> She's much more competent than he is. <laughs> yeah, she has a wide variety of talents, and John kind of fumbles through things. He seems to get lucky a lot. Still, they both solve a lot of problems by sleeping with people. <laughs> it's the Constantine way. <laughs> what do you think of Robespierre? Well, he seemed like a real jerk. <laughs> That's sort of the historical consensus. But as a villain for this issue... Oh, he had a lot of great presence, and I thought there was a, a good exchange of ideas between him and Constantine. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting... Well, I don't want to say subtext, because it's fairly textual in this story. But there's a fairly interesting point made in this story about 
the value of legends and gods as Robespierre is trying to create a world without superstition and something out of legend arises to defeat him. Called out fairly explicitly in the way that the French calendar has done away with the dead gods and kings. Yeah, and just in in a more general sense, revolutions can change governments, but it's very difficult for them to change cultures. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. The idea of dismissing old knowledge, of dismissing fantasies and dreams, seems to be one that uh, Neil Gaiman is not happy with. Yeah, I mean, you know, the hyper-violent days of the French Revolution are a fairly easy target Mm -hmm. for political satire. Yeah. But I do think that Gaiman makes a good point about about the value of stories here. Mm -hmm. Well, shall we move on to Sandman number 30? August, written by Neil Gaiman, pencils by Brian Talbot, and inks by Stan Walk. Cover by Dave McKeon. Here we have two nude Greeks sitting before a painting. And the painting seems to be of hands on a blue body. Right, a person's chest with hands grasping it. At first I thought that these two were supposed to be desire and despair, but I think that they are the characters that we meet in just a moment. We open on a 16-year-old boy laying in bed. He is afraid but refuses to cry. Yes, he's specifically listening for a footfall. Not crying, the narration says, though we can see that he is. And that brings us to the memoirs of the dwarf Lysias. Near death, Lysias no longer fears recording certain secrets that only he knows. As the memoirs narrate, we see the young Lysias walking the streets of Rome with a mat and a picnic basket. And incidentally, this is page one, our title page. This secret, Lysias narrates, he was told by the Emperor Augustus, and in the flashback he presents a seal that gets him past the guard and into the palace. He has a brief run-in with Lady Livia, who is not happy to see him. Dwarf, what foolishness brings you here? Lady Livia, you're up early. I'm here on the Emperor's orders. Hmm, yes, I was afraid of that. And then enters the Emperor's study. Dwarf, have you brought everything? This is the first time we meet Augustus. He is a older but strong-looking man with uh, white hair. Quite ugly. Very well-dressed for a Roman. Now, I think we're supposed to be going into this with the basic knowledge that Augustus was the first emperor of Rome. Right. This is after the Republic of Rome was destroyed by Julius Caesar and the actions of his assassins. Right. So Julius Caesar is not considered the first emperor because he was assassinated before he could become emperor. According to the version that Shakespeare presents, at least, he was basically murdered on the suspicion that he might kind of want to become emperor. (laughs) Right. Now... Speaking of actors, Lysias is one, and he shows Augustus what they call the Skaldrum Dodge. This, however, is a trick he learned from Persian beggars. Yeah, essentially, it's a soapy material that puts the appearance of scars all over you. Yeah, they uh, coat themselves in a soap, basically, a mix of fat, bone, and ash. And then when they pour vinegar over the mix, it turns to realistic-looking blisters. Augustus reminds... Lysias that his real name is Caius and he should only call him that for the day while they're out of the palace. He puts on an eye patch and they dress up as beggars. Remember that today we are beggars together, friend Lysias. As they walk out onto the street, Lysias admires the temple of avenging Mars. I found it in brick and I have left it clad in finest marble, says Augustus. 
Lysias offers food, but Augustus rarely eats much, to Lysias' surprise. Really? Gosh, I thought that, well, you'd eat lark's tongues and sow's udders, all that fancy stuff. I would if I were emperor. Hit the vomitorium and back again for more. But you are not emperor, are you, Lysias? And until the sun sets tonight, neither am I. So they sit down on some stairs. Lysias instructs Caius to put a few coins in his begging bowl, prime the pump. Caius mentions that he doesn't like actors because it's a profession based on lying. No, you haven't been good to actors, have you? You banned any men of noble birth from the stage. I let you remain on the stage, Lysias. I'm the only one? Look at me. What else am I going to do? I see your point, Lysias. Today I need an actor. Today I too am an actor. They talk for a while about an actor that Augustus banished for giving the audience the finger. This is somewhat of a surprise to Lysias, as he has seen many people get away with being rude to the emperor to his face. I am a man. I matter little. Pylades was disrespectful to Rome. He was lucky I didn't have him killed. Actors. Lysias asks why Caius is doing this, pretending to be a beggar thing. Oh, it turns out he had a fucking dream. <laughs> you expect to read a Sandman issue and not run into that at some point? <laughs> I suppose not. Many dreams come through the gates of ivory, Lysias, and they lie. A few dreams come through the gates of horn, and they speak to us truly. He starts to talk about the dream that sent him here, but Lysias interrupts with a dream he had that he and Julius Caesar were playing the Menikmus brothers on stage. Julius Caesar? I wish I'd known him. I knew him. Well, of course you did. He was your father. Right, Caius knew Caesar, his adoptive father, his grandmother's brother. They first met at his grandmother's funeral. And now we go back into a flashback in very much the same style as the one that began the issue. The boy is twelve. His grandmother's pyre burns fiercely in the summer heat. He reads the oration with pride. Pride in his lineage. Pride in the Republic. The boy misses his grandmother. He does not cry. The man arrives late. The boy has never seen him before, but there is no mistaking him. His uncle. His hero. His god. Now they talk a little bit about family. Augustus, a.k.a. Caius, says that it's the foundation stone on which the empire is built. And he adds that he's very disappointed in his own children. A couple of guys come by and talk about giving them money, but decide that it's the gods' will that they're poor, which launches them into a discussion of gods. Caius reminds Lysias that as emperor he's also the chief priest. He says the gods exist, he's seen them, as well as those superior even to Jupiter, the seven, who are not prayed to, who are not gods, who were never men. And he's talking about the Endless there. Lysias recalls that emperors become gods on death. Caius will be one soon. They talk about a legend that Augustus was fertilized by a snake. It's not true, of course, but that tells us that he's an unpopular emperor. Of course not. My mother was entered by nothing more remarkable than my father's penis. <laughs> That's a good line. Caius says it will be good to be dead, to be a god. All my mistakes will be forgotten. All my crimes will be forgiven. He goes on to talk about all the people that he's had killed. What's the difference between being a god and what you've got now? I mean, you've got power of life and death over what, a hundred million people? Your rule extends from the stormy coasts of Gaul to the stinking deserts of Judea. Everybody loves you. Well, maybe not everybody, but you're heaps better than chaos. You're practically a god already. When I am a god, I will no longer be scared. This brings us to another flashback, only now he isn't a child in it. He's an old man, much like he is now. Caius awakes in the dark and momentarily fears he is 16 again. He calls for a storyteller who tells him tales until he's able to sleep again. Sitting in the heat of the sun, Caius, a.k.a. Augustus, 
asks where all the people have gone. It's noon, and they're hiding from the heat. Lysias again asks what they're doing here, and Augustus says, Later. At 16, he recaps he was summoned on campaign with Caesar. They were briefly together in Spain. Then Augustus was in Apollonia when he heard Caesar had been assassinated, and left right away to avenge him. You must have loved him very much. Hmm? No, I hated him. Caius then reminisces about Cicero. He was a great man. Yes, a fine mind and an honorable man. The last of the giants. Cicero, whatever happened to him? I had him killed. Augustus says that he's not vain, that he took his name hoping his reign would augur well for Rome. Lysias points out that the current month is named for Augustus. Caius says that won't last. We write our names in the sand, and then the waves roll in and wash them away. But we can leave things behind us. I am leaving an empire. Lysias asks him, why aren't you king? Caius talks about the power in names, that the Romans are a proud people who would not allow themselves to be ruled by a king. He notes the irony that he has the power to give rule to the people, which he doesn't, and they have the power to take it by force, which they don't. Humanity. They follow leaders, queens or kings, chiefs or emperors. We tell them what to do and they do it. We know no more than they, but still they follow us blindly, as people lost in the catacombs would follow a child carrying a flaming torch. And what do you follow, then? You leaders, to make us follow you and obey you. We follow our dreams. Once again, big surprise, totally blown away by that revelation. <laughs> now, at this point, a man comes by to put money into their bowl. He says that he used to be a slave, but since he's been freed, he's built up a business and become a rich man. No man knows the future. It behooves us all to walk with care. Caius says that he knows the future, having read all the prophecy he could get his hands on, and destroyed most of it afterwards. There are two futures. In one, Rome will be gone in a few centuries, eaten by barbarians and strange gods. In the other, Rome conquers the whole world and lasts forever. They were clear on what I had to do. He confirms that he chose one future. And it seems like he says that he destroyed only the prophecies of the other. Yeah, that might be right. Caius asks if Lysias is afraid of him. I'm an old man, but you should fear me. Not because I'm fast, and I am fast. As he says this, he snatches a rat and crushes it in his hand. And not because I'm strong, and I am strong. But because if I gave the word tonight, you would disappear, and no one would even dare mention that you had ever existed. And no one would dare complain, because the alternative to me is chaos. All right, I'm scared of you, but I still want to know. Why are you begging in the market? Because. Because I had a dream. At long last we see the dream. One night Augustus woke and called for a storyteller, but the man who came was unfamiliar to him, and we recognize Morpheus. A story, Octavian? Very well. He begins to tell the story of Augustus' life. On his first night in his uncle's war camp, something bad happened to him. No! How dare you! Who are you? Caius suspects Morpheus is a god, but Morpheus says, I am no god, but I am here as a favor to a god. All gods begin in my realm, Caius Octavius. They walk your world for a span, and when they are old, they return to my world to die. Caius recognizes that he's in a dream, which is confirmed by Dream's Raven, who identifies himself as Aristeus of Marmora, dead these 700 years. The poet who became Apollo's raven? Then you are Apollo? I pray you, be not Apollo of the Torments, but Apollo of some gentler aspect. 
I am not Apollo, I am no sun god, but poets and dreamers are my people, and it is not unheard of for us to be confused. I am no little Roman dream god, no god of rhyme and madness. I am myself. He's said that line before, I am myself. Yeah, that's a favorite. He's here, Morpheus goes on, on behalf of Terminus, the god of boundaries, uh, one of those who Augustus had mentioned earlier as one of the gods more powerful than Jupiter. Morpheus is here to counsel Caius a way out of his dilemma. You labor under a heavy burden. While you are emperor of Rome, the gods of Rome watch you, and you fear the gods, don't you? Yes. But you have plans, Augustus, plans you do not wish the gods of Rome to know. So, for a day in every year, do not be emperor. What? But how? Be a beggar, Augustus. Go to the marketplace and beg for coppers. Plan your course on that day, when the gods will not be watching. And then... And then I awoke. So just to recap here, Lysias asks, Some man in your dreams told you to come and beg in the marketplace because the gods can't see you thinking here? I believe that's what he was telling me, yes. The god he fears, Caius goes on to explain, is Julius Caesar. So far he's done everything Caesar set out for him to preserve the empire. So Lysias asks him, what has he decided today? Observe our empire. My empire is based on military conquest. As long as new countries are being conquered, as long as the legions have new territories to conquer, then Rome will live. So? Terminus is the only god to whom Jupiter must bow. So basically he decides that he has to set boundaries on Rome in order to... Set boundaries on expansion, thereby to kill the Roman Empire. Goodbye, dwarf. We will never speak to each other again. You will not tell anyone of this day, or of our talk. Keep the coins. Goodbye, Augustus Caesar. So, today I was the actor. Or perhaps today I did not have to act. He goes to sleep and we find him again at 16. And, without recapping in too much detail, his first night in Caesar's war camp, his uncle comes to him and rapes him. Right, now, do you think that Lysias found that out? Or is that the part of the secret that never comes out? I think this is the secret that he keeps to himself. Okay. He lies awake in the darkness, night after night, waiting for his uncle, waiting for the pain, and never crying. Even though we can see from the art that he is. Fifty years later, Lysias writes in his memoirs, he notes that Augustus forbade further expansion, and he also got to choose his successor. The next four emperors were awful. Perhaps he achieved his goal, perhaps not. But I still persist in wondering, what was Augustus afraid of? Why did he wake in the night screaming? Why was he angry? Why was he scared? I do not know his secret, and Augustus has taken it with him, to Olympus, or to the grave. And we see in the final panels, we zoom in close on the statue of Augustus on Lysias' desk, on the face of Augustus, not crying. So, that was a pretty boring issue. <laughs> so that is probably one of, if not the actual bleakest issue of the Sandman. Augustus Caesar destroyed the Roman Empire deliberately, because Julius Caesar raped him. I assume there's no historical basis for that. For the rape? Yeah. I, I have no idea. Well, the thing is, the entire issue is just a conversation between two people, and they really don't discuss much of consequence most of the time. The big secret never actually comes out. I, I see what you mean. It's a conversation, but we find out what's going on with Augustus. Lysias doesn't. Yeah. And you feel it lacks tension because of that? 
or lacks dramatic development. What dramatic development we have feels kind of like a cheat because of it. Because Caius has known everything from the beginning. Right, and I mean, it just drops us into flashbacks whenever it feels like it, instead of things being revealed through machinations of the plot. I see, I see. Hmm, you know, this isn't one of my favorite issues of the Sandman, but I thought that the the slow playing out of the secrets and the building of dramatic tension through the characters in their uh, circumlocution around the topics that they want to talk about, their constant changing the subject, was all pretty effective. Hmm, okay. So you basically thought it was intentional that they seemed to meander from one subject to another. Yeah, it was kind of a, a realistic conversation in that way. Okay. Um, it's definitely true that Lysias doesn't come away with much of an understanding here. It's for us to understand Augustus, not for him. Right. And Morpheus, of course, just has, you know, magic understanding of it. Yeah, I guess Morpheus sees every dream, but... Morpheus has one of the smallest roles in the story that he's ever going to get in this series, in this issue. He's really just a bit player. He doesn't even really help Caius make the decision so much as just give him a place to think. Yeah, true. Well, that brings us to Sandman number 31, Three Septembers and a January. Written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Sean McManus, with colors by Daniel Vazo and a cover by Dave McKeon. There's an elaborate building all in black and white, and in one window is a colorful man in a top hat. And I found the drawing of the building to be a little bit whimsical, with its, you know, not quite straight lines. Yeah, that's fair. Sort of slightly odd proportions as the windows seem to pop out of the building a little bit. It's September of 1859. We meet Joshua, a failed businessman. He's standing before a mirror with a straight razor in his hand, and a voice speaks to him from behind. Well, Joshua, what are you going to do now? And as we see the source of the voice, this is despair. Morpheus' sister, one of the endless. Now, the art here by Sean McManus is actually pretty Dringenberg-like, I thought. All right. Um, there's a kind of whimsical exaggeration to it, to Norton's mustache in particular. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I guess we don't know if it's Norton yet. Joshua's mustache, I should say. Despair urges the failed businessman to commit suicide, but then considers he might have greater potential, and she calls for her brother Dream. My brother, I do not stand in my gallery, neither do I hold your sigil in my hand. Am I doing the same Augusta's voice? No, it's not exactly It's different? Same. Okay. Dream, come to your sister. Come to despair. Joshua's all sad and pouty. Yeah, if he's aware of despair in the room, he's not giving her the time of day. Yeah, I think he thinks he's all alone. Dream shows up, dressed in a very smart-looking outfit. You called me my sister, and I have come. And with him appears the title, Three Septembers and a January. Now, despair wants to play a game. But, as we already know, Dream does not usually play in the games of the Lesser Endless. Right. Now, she issues a challenge, saying that this man has fallen into despair and lacks even the courage to commit suicide. What, she asks, can dreams do for him? The challenge is not just mine. Desire and delirium will stand with me on this. Now, when Morpheus refuses to play along, she sort of goads him into taking up the challenge by bringing up their missing sibling. Right, she blames his haughtiness for the prodigal leaving. And so, with a sad look, Dream blows a bit of sand into the businessman's eyes. 
Who are you, Joshua? What makes you what you are? What do you dream? Introducing himself as Joshua Abraham Norton, the man describes his dreams. The ship that failed, ruining his fortune. Dreams that he's still solvent. Dreams of his childhood in Africa. But I came to America, a country without a king. Now, it's interesting here that as he recites his dreams, his appearance changes from panel to panel. Though it's always, you know, fairly whimsical and bizarre looking. Yeah, in the first panel, his mustache is massive and he's wearing a huge top hat and has ravens sitting on his shoulders. In the second panel, he's still got the top hat and a, and a ridiculous grin. And gigantic ears. Yeah. And in the third panel, it's his mouth that's enormous. And he's in a suit that's too big for him. Despair taunts Dream, uh, who is also still conscious in the hotel room. Dreams are nothing, my brother. Dreams are nothing, sister? Without dreams, there could be no despair. Norton and Joshua stand in front of a map of the United States, and Norton says he has nothing left to dream. Can you really keep him from my realm, from all our realms, before our oldest sister comes for him? That's the challenge, brother. Already I have my hook in his heart, and what is there to understand? He's mortal. He's nothing. No, then I will give you a dream, Joshua. Let's throw this out there. Needless to say, Joshua Norton is a real historical personage. There's no real point in talking about what happens to him, because we're going to see it in the next 20 pages. Now, at this point, his landlady asks him if he has guests. She thought she heard folks talking. No, Mrs. Rutledge, I'm alone, but I must request silence, if you please. I am drafting a proclamation. Oh, well, that's all right, then. What did you say, Mr. Norton? Norton bustles down the stairs of his building in a hurry to get his proclamation to the evening newspapers. At the evening bulletin, we cut immediately to two people reacting to the proclamation, reading Norton's letter in shock. And who was he? I've never seen him before, but he looked perfectly normal to me, perfectly polite, just gave me his letter and left. But, well, read it for yourself. At the peremptory request of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and for the past nine years and ten months of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States, and in virtue of the authority in me vested, to hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in the music hall of this city on the first day of February next, then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring, and thereby cause confidence to exist, both at home and abroad, in our stability and integrity. And it's signed, Norton I, Emperor of the United States. Seemed normal, you say, Fitch. I must confess myself surprised. Well, what are you going to do with this drivel? What am I going to do with it? Why is that not obvious? I'm going to print it! Now at this point we see Dream kind of hanging out with Norton, and Death shows up to talk to him. He's still wearing his cool suit, by the way. Yeah. She's also in period dress, and she's surprised that he's playing the younger siblings' games. He explains that despair provoked him by mentioning the prodigal. So? That's not your fault. It was his decision. He's a grown-up, and I thought you were too. I may have been wrong. I just hope you know what you're doing. I hope that same thing on occasion. She asks him what is up with Norton. He replies, I have given him what many mortals have lived and died for, sister. I have made him king. Now we cut to September of 1864. Five years later. 
a man tears up a draft of something, and he walks out of his building and strikes up a conversation with Norton. In the conversation, we learn that this is Sam Clemens, better known as Mark Twain. He invites Norton to dinner. Norton is hungry, but he can't accept charity, but he recalls that Clemens owes him 50 cents in taxes, which he collects on the spot. <laughs> he expresses annoyance that some people around him have accused him of being mad, perhaps because he ordered a bridge to be built across the bay to Oakland. Now, today there is a bridge that connects San Francisco to Oakland. It's called the Bay Bridge, but it was not completed until 1936. San Francisco needs bridges, Sam. People need bridges. Um, hello, Dream. Well, Sam and Norton are chatting, Delirium sits down with Morpheus at another table. She has, in this issue, exaggerated the Asian features, as she has apparently spent the day with young Chinese girls forced into prostitution, quote, too diseased to live. So, Delirium is here about the challenge, although she's pretty blasé about it. She's also carrying a heart. Yeah, she sort of conjures it to show Morpheus an image of what disease is like. Not really sure what that's about, but okay. I don't think there's any disease that does that to your heart. Well, it's, it's bleeding. Maybe she's having a bleeding heart because she feels bad. Okay. Well, if that's <laughs> what you think is going on. She's a weird kid, man. She's a Yeah, she's definitely crazy. But they talk about the fact that it seems to her that Norton ought to belong to her. Oh, yeah, she said something about that. I don't know. He ought to be mine, but he isn't, is he? He's so sane, except about being emperor, of course, and I'm not even sure about that. Are you pleased to see me? Maybe you are. I like to see you, but you're kind of scary. Perhaps. Huh? Perhaps I am pleased to see you, sister. Oh. Norton, meanwhile, encourages Sam to write down the funny story he's been telling about a jumping frog. People like things that make them laugh. He says that people laugh at him. Don't you mind that, your majesty? Why should I mind, Sam? Let them laugh. I am still their emperor. Emperor Norton then decides to do Sam a favor. Right, he writes a proclamation declaring Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, official spinner of tales and teller of stories to the United States. For the duration of his mortal lifetime. For the duration of my mortal lifetime, huh? That's pretty big of you, your majesty. Well, I must promenade once more to show myself to the multitudes. Duty calls. He's not mine, is he? His madness... his madness keeps him sane. Meanwhile, a flying frog that Delirium has made flies across the ceiling of the tavern. And do you think he's the only one, my sister? September, 1875. That's 11 years later. A man with a big mouth approaches a much older Norton. Norton is now a tourist attraction known across the country. He charges the man 50 cents in taxes, giving a receipt which the man takes for a souvenir. Wooey! Wait till I show everybody back home the souvenir! This'll be one to tell your grandchildren, Lizzie. You saw the one and only Emperor of the United States. A Chinese fellow named Ah Hao approaches speaking excellent English, and he talks in some detail with Norton about ongoing Tong Wars. This is apparently his Chamberlain. Right. A boorish fellow interrupts, asking Ahau where he can find opium. Ahau pretends not to speak English. Handled that pretty well. That guy looks like a sea captain. 
Anyway, Ahau is here to tell Norton that his presence is required at the Cobweb Palace. Now, the Cobweb Palace is a real place. It was a restaurant in San Francisco from 1856 to 1897, run by a guy named Old Abe Warner, who we will actually see in a moment here, named for the presence of many webs since Warner refused to kill spiders on the premises. He kept the place full of live animals, taxidermied animals, and other weird shit. Including naked ladies. Well, paintings for naked ladies, looks like. Norton and Ahau enter the Cobweb Palace... And old Abe's parrot senses a ghost coming. Enters a man in a fancy red suit and a matching red top hat. He introduces himself as the King of Pain. Yeah, now the King of Pain is another historical character. He's a traveling liniment salesman who used to frequent the Cobweb Palace. He made a fortune, but lost it all in gambling debts and committed suicide, all of which Norton basically recalls. And even though he remembers that the King of Pain is dead, Norton is skeptical at the idea of a ghost. No questions, Joshua. You don't mind if I call you Joshua, one king to another, after all. My principal sent me here with an offer for you. Your principal? My principal heard about your problem, Joshua. I have no problems, Pain. No problems? No problems? Joshua, buddy, bubby, you don't have an empress. You may be Norton 1, but where are Norton's 2 through 16 going to come from? The stork isn't going to bring them. Norton admits that ladies usually refuse him, intimidated by his noble rank. The King of Pain offers Norton a choice of five eligible aristocratic ladies. You want to see them with their clothes on or off? Sir! Okay, okay, don't get yourself all riled up. In addition, he offers a big fancy house. I don't understand, sir. Are you expecting me to make some kind of deal with you? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, only a little one. Look at her. Isn't she beautiful? She could be yours, Joshua. All yours. All you have to do is want her. All you have to do is want. Norton is not interested. He says it's true that he lives humbly, but this is my city in my country. They treat me well here. I want nothing. But you could be a real emperor, goddammit. You can have anything you want. At Norton's urging, Ahau adds what a judge said when releasing Norton from a charge of lunacy. Mr. Norton has shed no blood, robbed no one, and despoiled no country, which is more than can be said for most fellows in the king line. I am the emperor of the United States, Payne. I am content to be what I am. What more than that could any man desire? Now, the King of Pain gets kind of strident, so Norton asks Old Abe to show him the door. Sir, this conversation is unfitting, and it is at an end. And he does. The King of Pain returns outside to his coach. It's a jet-black coach pulled by six white horses, which is a true-to-life detail of the King of Pain. Now, leaning out of the coach, we meet the King of Pain's principal. This is another of the endless that we have met, Desire. So, you failed. I, well, yeah. Sorry, Desire. How, how did you do that, Dream? Norton lusts after women. I can feel it. He wants so badly. There was no way that he could say no. He had no protection. He should have been mine. He has his dignity, sister brother. He is, after all, an emperor. So Payne gets in the coach and Dream gets out, and before he walks away, Dream expresses his disappointment at this unsubtle display. She oh. tells him to go screw himself. Well, yeah, she says something very specific here. She says... I should say, he, she, desire being androgynous. Right. He wants subtle. 
He'll get subtle. Just watch me. Not here, not with Norton. But I'll make him spill family blood. I'll bring the kindly ones down on his blasted head. One day. Yeah, I suppose it's not long at this point. This being, what, 1875? Yeah. So it's still a while until her uh, rape of Unity Kincaid. Right, her scheme with Unity Arrows. Their rape of Unity Kincaid. Yeah. And I think this is the first mention of the kindly ones. Is it not? I don't remember, but we have definitely noticed that there was an effort back in the second major story arc of the series, The Doll's House, that Desire had gone to an awful lot of trouble to try to get Morpheus to spill family blood. And we've and kind of ha- been in the dark as to what happens when you spill family right. blood. Right, we know it has consequences, we don't know what they are. Right. So that brings us to the January, January 1880, five years later, or four and a half, I guess. Yeah. Walking in the street in a heavy rain, Norton collapses and apparently dies. And then despair appears. I hoped that you would come back to me, Joshua, but no. I would seem to have failed. You're a pitiful madman, a Tama Bedlam, dying in the gutter in the rain. But you never despaired. You won. Dream appears and despair acknowledges that Dream won the challenge. Dream offers Despair as a souvenir, a statuette of Emperor Norton. For the lesson, perhaps, if nothing more. What lesson? They disappear, and Death appears, clad in coat and tails. Time's up, Your Majesty. In the background of these panels, there's a nice bit of business where we see somebody finding the body while Death is talking with Norton. You were Jewish once, weren't you, Joshua? Did you ever hear the story of the 36 Zadokim? I do not believe so. They say that the world rests on the backs of 36 living saints, 36 unselfish men and women. Because of them, the world continues to exist. They are the secret kings and queens of the world. An odd legend, young lady, but I'm afraid I do not see its significance. No? I met a lot of kings and emperors and heads of state in my time, Joshua. I've met them all. And you know something? I think I liked you best. They walk off together. Norton lets death wear his hat. And we close on this narration. Joshua Norton was buried on Sunday, the 10th of January, 1880. 10,000 people filed past the body as it lay in state, and his funeral cortege was over two miles long. His burial was marked by a total eclipse of the sun. He was the first and last emperor of the United States of America. Not bad. You like that one? Yeah, that's a pretty good issue. Yeah, Norton's an interesting story. It's also cool just to see the endless work against each other to get a story that kind of delineates what their different spheres are. Shows us a little bit of the values and powers of each. Yeah, that's true. And like I said, we got our first mention of the kindly ones. So we're, you know, getting some some more background and some more fleshing out of the magical world. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Emperor Norton is a really interesting historical story. And I think that Gaiman here has sort of complemented that story in a really enjoyable way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's always perhaps a a risk when, you know, adding mystical nonsense to historical events that you would kind of devalue those stories. And I think he's really gone out of his way not to do so. There's also an interesting element here. Uh, Did you notice we've seen Dream collect the dead who are of particular interest to him? It's shown here that Desire does the same. Oh, yeah, that's true. Although death has to show up anyway. Yeah, death has to take someone across the transition. But apparently there are dead taken into the realm of each of the endless perhaps yeah i guess we know that some of them like matthew 
end up in Dream's realm. And didn't he offer to have Rose come there as well? That's right. And I believe Unity did end up staying in the Dreaming. Oh, yes, yes. I wonder when we're going to see more of Rose. It's going to be a long while. She's not in uh, a game of you? No, she's not. Although we will meet a familiar character or two in that one. All right. Well, that is our next Sandman episode, am I right? It is not. But first, it's time for a segment I like to call Procedurally Generated. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric hates procedurals. Yet I am going to ask him which two minor characters from this week's comics he would like to see in a quirky cop show of their very own. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, Lysias for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yeah, I think uh, I think Lysias and um, Citizen Robespierre uh, <laughs> could solve murder mysteries. It could be called Short on Time. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. <laughs> Does it take place in France or, or Rome or all across history? No, John, it takes place in New York City. Oh, my bad. That's basically your, in the standard, 70s. your standard time displaced <laughs> cop show. Yeah, that's right. I do have a, a little prepared pitch that I'd like to read here. Okay. Uh, this this pitch is called White Toga. <laughs> One is the first emperor of Rome. One is a theatrically trained dwarf. They fight crime. Each episode sees Lysias whipping up a new disguise, though always covered in pus, so that he and Augustus can infiltrate various gangs, slaving rings, and barbarian tribes. Episodes tend to end on a contemplative note, as instead of arresting or fighting criminals, Augustus goes home and has them all killed. <laughs> so, so given the choice between these two, uh, which of these programs would you watch once and then say, eh, it's a procedural? Um, between my proposal and yours? Yes. Well, mine, of course. <laughs> okay. Do people get guillotined on this show? Yes. <laughs> I've, just, I've just decided. <laughs> it's it's what you gotta do. Well, I think that we're about out of time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Join us in our next Sandman episode for Sandman Annual Number 1, The Song of Orpheus. But first, join us next week as John Constantine goes home and bees a family man. John, that's not what happens. <laughs> no, it's much more disturbing than that. <laughs> Well, if you like our show, you can check out our website at uh, vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you're listening to The Vertiguys on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app, we'd sure like it if you would like, rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah, that's right. Positive reviews really do a lot to expand the audience of the show. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at Vertiguys on Twitter, and I'm at BlankCastSean on Twitter. We're also available at vertiguys at gmail.com with any questions, especially if you want them answered on the air. That's right. And we also have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash vertiguys. Yeah, that's right. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Okay, this time you can see the signature much more clearly. And it really doesn't look like it says Dave McKeon. There's a big K in there. I guess, but it looks like it starts with a B. Dave McKeon. Banana McKeon. I think it says Banana McKeon. Banana McKeon. (laughs) 